I do think we finally get answers to that Q question that we had a couple readings ago about the despotic machine. So that might be something to look forward to for you. Can you refresh my memory there? Like then we we talked about like Q as if they were like installing a sort of like Erstat or despotic machine, right? They had they had they had a way of like uh, overcoding, right? Or like coming up with a code for the situation. I don't know if I have a very good memory of like specifically what we were drawn to in that discussion either, but. I think that they finally get explain how something like that can happen in 310. Yeah, I remember that was you, you, Lou, and I, and we were talking about, we went from Nickland um, to QAnon. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we were talking about like, was it that we were talking about how QAnon is made possible in a way that might be able to displace a certain limit? Or am I, am I misremembering? I don't remember that, that, that so much about displacing limits. I, it was more like, it was like they had an idea of the world that was very structured, right? Like it was, they took flows of information that were really kind of just chaos, right? Or maybe not chaos is a, you know, there's too much too many connotations with that word, but it was like they took these flows and they ordered them in a really structured way. Like here's a narrative that explains how the government's working and there's a very good and evil kind of, you know, an inside and outside. It's very structured uh, compared to something that might be more uh, schizophrenic, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, it's a difficult one, though, because some of those QAnon stories are absolutely schizophrenic, right? Like (laughs) the idea that Hillary Clinton is going into some basement and partaking in like a pizza shop sets child trafficking scan. Like it's just, it's pretty out there. But I wonder if like, to your point, like it does seem weird to me that there does seem to be levels of codes there that they're referencing, right? In terms of like, because I've started to notice that like major issues can be have this attendance to codes too for instance like child uh, sex trafficking comes up um as a talking point right and i think talking points probably do point to codes in some way um but then to the flip side as you mentioned the earth's not i don't know if i told you the story about me driving and i saw all these trump supporters protesting covid and their way of protesting COVID was talking about every other issue that we're not giving attention to, or so they said. And like, it was weird because it's like, okay, you guys typically strike me as kind of anti-government. And here you are saying like the government's focused on the wrong thing. They should be solving every other problem aside from COVID. Fascinating. Yeah, it, it is kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... Eco says it best, right? Like this is not like this is not a game of sequential logic. Mm. So Here's it. We, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go for it, Muskie. 
I was just going to say like, oh, here's here's the paragraph uh, that reminded me of that conversation we were having about QAnon, where it's uh, the social axiomatic of modern societies is caught between two poles and is constantly oscillating from one pole to the other. uh, Blah, blah, blah. Born of decoding and deterritorialization on the ruins of the despotic machine, these societies are caught between the earth's thought that they would like to resuscitate as an overcoding and re-territorializing unity and the unfettered flows that carry them towards the absolute threshold. This language of like this is a there's a paranoiac pole and then there's the the decoded deterritorialized schizophrenic pole and then you just like flip back and forth between the two forever and that's what it is to be in the sort of late capitalist condition. Yeah, and to that point, you can kind of see like it's sort of an irony about like things like liberalism, right? That there's this idea that you can kind of you know be lib- be be in liberty without a government. But in the same way, you always come back to what the government should be in an ideal sense, right? Like you still have, you know, you could have, um, you, you have those arguments where it's like, you know, we just need government to do as little as possible. But then that'll flip in terms of like criminal prosecution, where all of a sudden as little as possible is a lot. Yeah, I think that psychology is exactly what they are getting at, that there's a, the the paranoiac pole that wants to resuscitate these like rigid structures uh, as what is it an overcoating and despotic unity and the flip side of that is the sort of oh we don't need structure right liberty is best when government does as little as possible um, correct me if I'm wrong but they had a quote earlier in one of these sections where they said there has never been a liberal capitalist that I've been trying to like understand, but I don't think I can. I'm not exactly sure what it means. If anyone else remembers that, uh, I think that might be a cool thing to talk about. I'm going to drop a picture in the chat that somebody posted on the Thomas Pynchon server that I think is relevant here. So I think we have, uh, I think we have enough people to actually try to do this. Uh, Kent, are you uh, up for chatting today, or are you just listening in, Alyosha? So let me, uh, let's see. Let's uh, go back through. So uh, this is going to be an interesting session today. I'm actually uncertain about exactly how it's going to go, because uh, we were trying to do something a bit more organized with the review session as we kind of fleshed out and finished uh, Section 310 before we moved back into Section 4 because there is so very, 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 very much to go over. And a lot of us have some major questions. Uh, I know Doug uh, was hoping to join and couldn't, and he had a whole thing on universal history that he's been researching and digging into specifically for the last week. Um, But uh, the goal would be for us to go through all the major questions we have or questions anyone has regarding 3.10 and 3.9 or anything major really uh, up until this point uh really anything throughout the book so if you're a little bit earlier or if you're stuck on anything this is there is no such thing as stupid questions here i have a, a thousand questions if i wasn't uh, in a position where i literally had to just lead this and keep charging ahead we'd probably be stuck still in section one as i try to understand some of the things so don't hesitate to throw out your questions your thoughts or anything that's going on so uh yeah, this is uh, the the Error Brooks Knight's thousand one questions. Uh, don't hesitate to uh, ask. But uh, we will start with let's let's go back a little bit um, and talk through because uh, Matt sadly didn't join us, and I know he's been having a huge read through. Let's find exactly the thing he's been diving through. Uh, 
Um, on page 64, Matt's a little bit behind uh, our current reading, but I think it's a fair place to start. Page 64, uh, it's a ways back, uh, everyone, if you want to dive through. Uh, it was back in psychoanalysis, uh, the early, early sections of it. And right there. Um, in page 64, they say, to quote, from the outset, the psychoanalytic relationship modeled itself after the contractual relationship of the most traditional bourgeois medicine, the feigned exclusion of a third party. Uh, and his question is, why is this exclusion feigned? What is the third party? Uh, and this is actually a really fantastic place because I don't have the slightest fucking clue on what that is. So I'm open if anyone is there to jump in. Just as a, a point that comes to mind, that's a really interesting passage to look back on having now discussed the eye that strats cruelty in like the theater of cruelty during the primitive uh, territorial machine. Right, because there's got to be where they adopt that Nietzschean argument. There's got to be this observer who um, who takes pleasure in strats to surplus code. Now we're looking at um, a, a sort of bourgeois, um, like a tri like a triangle where there is no third, where there doesn't seem to be that third point. Uh, the wording under uh, the feigned exclusion of a third party. I think the feigned part is the part I'm having trouble with on grasping that sentence. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because it's that if they were talking about the actual exclusion of a third party, it makes sense to me. You and me, we're sitting here, analyst, analyst, and, and we're having the conversation. But the feigned exclusion of the third party is the part I find interesting. And the third part is, as Lou said, it's it's the, the next sentence. I'll just continue reading slightly. The hypocritical role of money to which psychoanalysis brought farcical new justifications. Uh, the pretend time limitation that contradicts itself by reproducing a debt to infinity, by feeding an inexhaustible transference, always new conflicts. Uh, the, they're basically mocking the idea of people selling uh, the analysis and that process, and that's the, the feigned third-party exclusion, because it's still there, the economic relationship and that sort of overbearing pressure that capital necessarily brings to that relationship. That's I think the uh, the the like one of the one of the core things, and that's why I wanted to start with this, is uh, they want to really push heavily this idea of looking at the things we believe we don't realize are already true, uh, that we don't realize we're taking as an axiomatic, and one of those would be uh, the the monetary exchange, the economic exchange that's happening between analyst and analyst and, which isn't something that people naturally think of, especially people in the psychoanalyst community. Uh, Lou's question, the question is why, is the dethematization of the economic relation the contractual relationship of the most traditional bourgeois medicine? I think I can advance like a bit of an answer to that, where it's like enlightenment science really likes to pretend as if it would exist without, you know, any sort of social field, right? Like as if the social field, it's somehow like detached from it, right? Medicine and science both like to... 
I don't want to say pretend because it sort of implies that they're like false, right? Be- which I don't want to say because science is important. They, are, they believe that they are schizo or nomadic, that they yeah. live on those they live on those outside parts and they're not part of ultimately the economic machine. Yeah, they, there's a there's a social field that is like erased in a doctor patient relationship uh, and and to some extent in a therapist client relationship, too. You know, though, I, I feel like we should um, keep in mind that topic sentence, though, because it's not just the analyst and the analyst sound, right? Or it's not just them in the uh, Freudian couch, uh, that familiar scenario. But they're, they're pointing out a disjunction, right? Institutional analysis tries to trace its difficult path between the repressive asylum and the least legalistic hospital on the one hand and contractual psychoanalysis on the other. So obviously we're doing we're doing a great job of digging into that ladder. But to kind of go back to the former too, you know, they're getting into like the clinic and that, right? The asylum. Where um I think too, like right, you guys are I, I think getting at the main one of the heart of the points here too is like this stuff is taken for granted um and is at best rendered as something positive in the community for fixing people, right? But it's also deterritorializing, right? It's it's placing people into um, some incredible conditions, to say the least. It's, and it's the, the monetary side of this that they keep hammering away. Uh, the the last sentence of that paragraph, I think, gets it very nicely because it's effectively these people are I am are, are taking on the idea and they don't say it this way but it's the actual truth I am selling you sanity I am selling you uh, this thing that you're now dependent on me for and they go on to say um, we are surprised when we hear a knowledgeable analyst mention in passing one of his patients still dreams of being invited to eat or have a drink at his place after several years of analysis as if this were not a tiny sign of the abject dependence to which analysis reduces patients. Uh, that the that's the the joke we have now is that basically uh, here in America at least I know that some of you are not here so you have uh, socialist medicine as we would call it but the idea of uh, I'm selling you survival in the form of a uh, epipen and you have to pay for these things or you have uh, disease that I've got a, a, you're dependent on me for it and you're constantly selling it and it's part of the monetary process we have it a lot more clear now but it's not something even that a lot of conservatives and other people will admit that the doctor patient relationship has a necessary monetary side uh, to it despite it being very spelled out in the political sphere yeah, and this is part of the representation, right? Is if you if you survive the asylum and you get fixed, or if you go to, to therapy and you get fixed, right, you can partake in the representation more directly. Right? You can sit at the bourgeois table. It's the, the promise that's waiting for you if you do it. But I mean it, generally you don't. It's a Guattari very, very famously consistently ragged against kind of everything that had to do with psychoanalysis at the time and the way it was done, uh, being a big advocate for uh, a group psychoanalysis and some things that were deeply non-traditional and still are actually to this day. Um, so hopefully that answered uh, uh, Matt's sort of starting point there. 
I'd like to jump forward a little bit now, uh, a little bit forward towards chapter three, as we talk about the Orstat. Um, on page uh, 261, uh, uh, we have, uh, and this is in uh, Savages, Barbarians, Civilized Men. Uh, we're finally kind of catching up to where we're at. But on page 261, uh, Tiernan brought up that they've been talking about the Urstadt for a few paragraphs and a few pages. How does capitalism make use of the Urstadt? Uh, that reminds me of what we were talking about before we officially started, right? The Q thing where um, there's that re-territorializing machine, right? Where you where you take these decoded flows, this information that isn't marked by, in a code or isn't structured, and you use the Erstat as the sort of primordial, like structure i guess itself right the primordial structure of the state and and that's the all re-territorialization for dmg is based on sort of re-instituting a version of the erstat well, it's I like think, a no and, and i think a big thing that they go into is how uh the the state changes that this isn't the 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 primordial erstat which i really like that phrasing of it uh because it's it does sort of evoke that when we talk about it. But um, as they say, the historian says, no, the modern state with bureaucracy and technocracy do not resemble the despotic state. Of course not, since it is a matter in the one case of re-territorializing decoded flows, but in the other case of overcoding them. Uh, the paradox is that capitalism makes use of the Erstat for affecting its re-territorializations. Uh, the the ability for the state to basically bring in and uh, re-territorialize those things that are on the horizon of capital, that are on the horizon of the market, that are on the horizon of things and can't be taken in, the, the state is there to make sure that those things can be. And uh, if we take uh, around this time uh, or even earlier, mid-1950s, uh, the what we did to Hawaii, what we did to Mexico, what we did to all these other countries that were things that we had utilized, we had deterritorialized these other countries quite literally, and then re-territorialized them by bringing them into our state or by bringing them into trade policy. The state is the mechanism that does that. It's just simply shifted over time. Can I also say, you know, I've been doing a lot of this Bergson reading. And at the risk of boring Jack, because I've brought up the same thing in our class on literature on Saturday, I am, I think it's so helpful because you realize, along with Simone Din and maybe Nietzsche, how much of Deleuze's concepts are sort of either directly or indirectly related to someone like Bergson. So a lot of what I had been struggling with the Erstat before, I feel like the more that I read about Bergson's writing on, on memory and the virtual, it helps me understand at least what they're attempting to get at. And there's this particular thing about recollection and memory that Deleuze is keen on with Bergson, where, he, you know, he's taught, among many other concepts, he talks about the idea of, you know, there's a common sense idea of the present and the past. And, you know, the past is just present moments, you know, passing into the past. But Bergson's intervention, to put it crudely, has to do with uh, saying, okay, there's the present is, is something that is always other than itself it's a kind of pure becoming and the past there is a kind of pure ontological past that isn't something that you know it's different in kind from the present and 
when we re- when we recollect that you know, he has this whole very complex system for talking about recollection, something that isn't just purely psychological and all the rest of that. But the important thing is he talks about recollection as an act of sort of leaping into recollection and, you know, the, the, the pure past being kind of stitched in to the present becoming. So uh, what ends up happening, because he considers the past as this virtual thing that has at every layer, it has all its potentials, you know, almost like a holographic layer. It, it has all of its um, moments tied up in it, in each level of the, of that past recollection. Uh, the way I'm linking this in my head with the Erstat thing is I, it just makes so much more sense to me when they say that thing about the Erstat comes all at once and that it it's not just a historical claim because that may or may not be dubious, but it's more about the idea of like the way that this exists in the virtual, you know, uh, I don't know, structure or potentials of the even the modern state is that it's it's always there and in order to be actualized it almost it has to always come all at once you know whether whether back in time or or now it's something you have to like leap into that that primordial past and then it becomes um i guess the way that that Bergson and Deleuze talk Deleuze talks about it in Bergsonism is that, that you know it, it moves from being something that is not useful to to something that is an active sort of conversation with the present so it's it's not just like a memory that you like to think about or something. It's something that has an actual specific relationship with present becoming. That's that's a long ramble, and I'm sure I got some things wrong. But uh, it, that idea of it, of that always existing in that past uh, virtual state, and it being something that leaps, it moves forward towards the present as much as we move forward towards it, kind of simultaneously, really was helpful to me. It would be. It's one of the one of the things for me um, with and I, I would recommend everyone read Bergsonism because it's Deleuze commenting directly on almost all of this. Um, the, the concept, the one thing that flows from that book for me, and I haven't read it in some time, is the concept of pure becoming and the difficulty around that we could have. So we could have a discussion in, uh, around that, I mean, in and of itself. Um, the way the past works, the way that we're constantly becoming, uh, the concept of imminence. I, there's there's so much that we could discuss inside of that. Um, but uh, let's let's try this then, uh, because one of the things we have debated is Deleuze's concept of the virtual and what virtual is, uh, and and how it plays. Does anyone have a want to take a crack at what the virtual is? to Deleuze. Come on. You're going to hear me typing furiously as I bring up some terrible thing. Lou can't talk, Alyosha. He's he's all fucked up from having uh, his wisdom teeth taken out. So we're giving his throat a break and we're not going to make him talk at all. So, uh... Damn. <laughs> well, there is the definition. I think the common one that we kept talking about in the chat was, uh, what is it real without being actual? And that that's the the key thing. So that it's it has an act, it has a real relationship with real structures, but it hasn't been actualized. And uh, yeah. in in the structure essay that we talked about, I think a little while ago, how do we recognize structuralism? Uh, Ijeluz gives the example of chess, for example, where you know you you couldn't just say that the the experience of playing chess is this imaginary like non real thing 
And there, there's something about the empty squares and the, the virtual system of rules and spaces and potential moves that you interact with that isn't, you know, it's not, it's not actualized yet because you're, you're thinking about it, but it isn't not real either because it has an actual sort of, that, I'm, that's a common sense use of that word, actual, uh, you know, relationship with the thing that you're actually doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, how I read, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, like, so for me, the key words to like put it more positively than just not actual is that it's the potentials and the tendencies and the uh, capacities of something. And that this part, I don't quite understand that, like, you know, we, we think of those as uh, sort of disconnected from what is actual and real, but for Deleuze, they're still somehow more part of the picture. In, uh, in, in Bergsonism, uh, there's, there's, uh, four states, um, you know, there's the virtual, the actual, the real, and the possible. And, um, and so it's, it, it, you know, the, the virtual is something that was, uh, you know, um, developed by Bergson, um, as a concept. And it, it, it has to do with, uh, uh, propensities and dispositions and things like that, and it's it's basically where the uh, Simondon's uh, pre-individual exists for uh, for Deleuze, I think. And and I think a lot of this, I've I've spent my time since we finished the chapter, and I've been reading a lot of logic of sense, and a lot of that. I mean, it's very sort of direct line from Bergsonism, and a lot of what Bergson wrote. Um, to be very specific, uh, I, I use and I like the Masumi definition, which is actually in the Wikipedia. Uh, definition for virtuality. It is something inaccessible to the senses, yet can be felt in its effects. Uh, it, it exists in kind of a, a slightly different place than the actual, because it's definitely not actual. And it's it's that odd place uh, that we sense a thing, or in, in the after effects of something, or the, the surrounding of something, sort of... Uh, it, it's not abstract. It's not real, even though it's real. It's not. It's not actualized. There's a sense around it, and it's. It's a fun sort of very poetic term. I really like. I, I love a lot of that stuff. Do they talk much like about specifically sort of what what moves something between the virtual and the actual? Like what what is it that is uh, subtending both of these? Say that one more time for me. Do they ever talk specifically about what they conceive of as like what what is that it moves something from the virtual to the actual, how something becomes actualized and like what it is that straddles both these two things? Yes, uh, I would have to go back and dig through. Uh, it, things move from the, the virtual to actual uh, through possibilities collapsing is very much sort of that setup. So when we talk about, uh, essentially we're talking about becoming. And uh, the theory is, oh, God, I could go on and on. I have, I have too many PDFs up right now. I could, give a, I could give a brief crack. I don't think I can answer that question, but I could say, I think depending on which of these guys you pick in your corner, you could get a slightly different answer. So yeah, if you were going for a Simondonian kind of answer from my limited experience, it would be, you know, about the 
you'd be talking about ontogenesis and about being sort of falling out of step with itself. That is something that happens to being in becoming and that, you know, he, he evokes kind of that idea of the Kleinemann as well. Like that is the beginning of that process. And, and it continues into the new metastable state. If you're going to go with Bergson, I mean, I'm in the section of Bergsonism right now that is super dense and very hard to parse, but he's talking about, you know, the function of recollection, recollection and time. This is the whole thing for Bergson about the duration. And he has all these different sort of breakdowns of, well, you know, how does recollection, because it's not something that we uh, initiate ourselves. It's sort of, it's it's a place in being that we move into and then recollection sort of moves towards us so it's not i guess it's not an agency sort of subject focused thing and in that you know he talks about all these things translation in the sense of moving from one point to another so it's like well there's translation and then contraction and orientation and in all these movements the recollection in this case this which is what, what is the virtual kind of thing for bergson you know, it it gets to this point where it is able to be actualized in an actual body. But a lot of that stuff is very, very complex. And I suspect that although Deleuze is using all that completely in talking about this stuff, if you were to just use anti-Oedipus and not think about all these other texts, you would have a whole different set of languages as well, a different set of terms to talk about this stuff uh, in terms of the virtual and the body without organs and, and capital. So I wonder if it would be helpful to, to do it in all those ways, but it might be good to kind of look within anti-Oedipus itself to how they might talk about it. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so um, one thing that comes up for me also is the connection between uh, the virtual and the unconscious. And uh, in difference and repetition, he links it to uh, difference and repetition, basically. And like the virtual is sort of like that thing that um, or that space or that plane of repetition where every repetition is is has some kind of difference in it. Um, and somehow it's different from consciousness, right? It's not like conscious striving after some goal, but it, it sort of has its own energy. So Masumi and... Uh, parables for the virtual, uh, which is a really worthwhile dive into literally this concept on behalf of him, um, on behalf of Deleuze and sort of the thinking around that. I, I want to read just a, a, it's a little long, but I'm going to read this paragraph. Uh, something that happens too quickly to have happened, actually, is virtual. The body is as immediately virtual as it is actual. The virtual, the pressing crowd of incipiencies and tendencies, is a realm of potential. And potential is where futurity combines, unmediated with pastness, where outsides are enfolded and sadness is happy, happy because the press to action and expression is life. The virtual is a lived paradox, where what are normally opposites coexist, coalesce, and connect, where what cannot be experienced cannot but be felt, albeit reduced and contained. For out of the pressing crowd, an individual action or expression will emerge and be registered consciously. One wills it to emerge, to be qualified, to take on social linguistic meaning, to enter linear action-reaction circuits, to become a content of one's life by dint of inhibition. Uh, I love this paragraph. It 
the big thing that happens inside of um, uh, the uh, logic of sense with Deleuze is he relates a series of paradoxes that uh, obviously can't be true, at least in a real sense, but he ta- he discusses how they all are. And the virtual side of life is where these paradoxes can exist and we can kind of know them. And this sort of conception of the virtual is the one I've attached to. And that I know, Alyosha, as you said, I think we can all end up with about a thousand versions of this, but this is the one I really like, where it's that the way, the sense we have around things, that thing before it becomes uh, hard and fast and concretized, uh, to use the term that they started using. Um, I think that was a good definition, Brooks, to be honest, because part part of what this is, whatever definition you're using, I think it's sort of uh, some of the quotes I was putting in the chat. It's it's not about, you know, the possible, the, the common sense way we understand the possible is sort of these different futures that could happen or could not happen. But I guess what all these different thinkers are trying to say is that these they're not simply possible because that would almost make them seem secondary or not important. But there's something about the existing in that potential state with the thing itself that maybe like you're saying whether it's you know maybe it's a sense of it rather than something rational but it's it is sort of the ground of conditions for those things to occur in the first place and therefore has a, a meaning and a structure that's important i guess and when talking about the virtual in logic of sense uh, he spends a great deal of time talking about uh, alice in wonderland and through the looking glass really everything by Lewis Carroll, where it's uh, about contradictions that these characters run into all the time. And yet we're still reading it. We're able to get a sense of what that world's like. Uh, So much so there's an animated show about it that made a lot of these things quite real and kind of ruined it. But the virtual is where we're able to imagine this place where Tweedledum and Tweedledee exist and they don't they don't exist at the same time as happens throughout that book. Uh, the the We get to be in a place where we can experience that as humans. We have a sense of those things. That's the, that's the idea. It's the logic of senses. I have a sense of these things. Um, what is the logic in that? There is none. What is the virtual? That is the virtual. And it said a lot of that uh, stems from Bergson and everything Bergson wrote and everything that's in Bergsonism is basically a lead into logic of sense. And logic of sense, I think, comes into play pretty heavily as we start talking about the interplay and how people deal with each other in the virtual space in capital. Oh, God. So to go back, let's uh, let's actually try to answer Tiernan's question. Uh, how does capitalism make use of the Aristotle? Uh, the primary way it does this is through territorializations uh, and utilizing the state for that strand of power to re-territorialize what it needs because it can't do that itself. It can essentially only de-territorialize. Is that a fair, at least attempt to summarize our answer? All right, Tiernan. Glad we could help you. Uh, I would love to uh, get my question answered that I posted. Uh, I am having trouble just in general. Um, um, 
the concepts of re-territorialization, territorialization, and deterritorialization, uh, I am having, I am struggling to come up with what I would call modern terms of this. Terms that were like, what are examples of that in the last few years? Not 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I'm having trouble bringing that more modern. Well, that reminds me of what we were talking about with the with the political, like like QAnon, right? Where that's a sort of re-territorialization where these people come together and create this territory, this community, this group. It might be a diffuse group. It might only exist on the internet, right? Or like certain pages on the internet. But it's still a kind of territory where they can come together and like create a structure, create a sort of political body that can you know, affect change. And that's a re-territorialization that is taking advantage of the deterritorialized, decoded flows that are in conjunction in the politics of the, you know, United States of America, I guess. I'd, I'd like to take a stab at that one. Um, as I understand it, like the territorializations refer to like uh, the body without organs. So if you recall, um, and actually, this goes back to when they talk about the body without organs as an egg. But there's those zones, those gradients, those thresholds. Um, as I was understanding it, it seemed to me that, like, with the disjunctive um, uh, distribution of the, the numinous energy right upon the body without organs and during the inscription process, you get all these gradients in that on the body without organs that during the third synthesis, the subjects pass through. And so with territorialization, as I'm understanding it, it's, um, it's related very directly, at least to those two syntheses, if not perhaps um, uh, the other. But um, with deterritorialization, as I'm thinking about it, the subject passing through those gradients is pretty much um, not nullified, but uh, the whole like remember in the third and in chapter one section three they talk about at least I think that's where it is before the I think there is the I feel right the the intensities and the affects right as I understand the territorialization it's it's a the sort of like afflicting the body without organs and more directly uh, the the subjects so that they're not going to do these pass throughs right that that numinous energy. Um, isn't getting that distribution to the uh, the celibate machine for that subject. So like, right, like um, with capital, for instance, um, and this was what I was kind of getting at with the clinic is like, it's tempting to say that that dehumanizes people. But I think more importantly, Deleuze and Guattari would say, actually, it's um, it's not that it dehumanizes them, right? It's that it deterritorializes them. Um, they... They become right numbers, patients. They get, they, they they get numbers, right? They're inmate or not inmate. They're um. Here's a Freudian slip for you. Uh, they're they're patient numbers so much. They have a dossier, right? That their feelings and that and that that bodily sense, um, are sort of extricated or uh, quashed, if you like. So with reterritorialization, you have the setting up of new gradients, new thresholds and that. I think I'm with you at the end where you ended up, but I think that I had a different read on what territorialization was as it starts in the primitive machine where it was like 
a very physical process about like codes are marked on the body of the earth where like in the sense that like the resources that a society needs or a group of people, cause maybe we're not even at the point of a society yet. Uh, it's not marked by a number that would be a more despotic formation. Um, it's just, you know, there was a plant here and now there's not a plant here. And that's the way that the, you know, body of the earth codes, the flows, and that's the territory. That's how I understood territorialization, right? Cause you could understand your group as having had an effect on the world and having had a space in the world, uh, through the way that the codes are, that the flows are marked on the, uh, earth. But then we ended up, I think was, is right. That's the sort of way that you know, re-territorialization works in the, in the clinic. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. To very quickly respond, it doesn't help that I'm speaking kind of generally about it, but in your example of the primitive territorial machine, in regards to the earth, right, the earth as socius, yeah. Um, I use the body of the organs in my example, but um, even in the capitalist machine, right, it's relative to the socius where the intensities um, are at play, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely like harder to talk about uh, in not with examples in the case of capitalism because like it's doing this double movement of deterritorialization and re-territorialization already, right? But I was thinking like an example is sort of like uh, the environmentalist movement getting forced into like uh, you know, capitulating with the political status quo and, and what uh, politicians are willing to uh, put forward, uh, you know, versus uh, you know, so it's the, the re-territorialization of this, like, potentially radical movement away from, uh, you know, prioritizing capital. That reminds me of what's the quote they have about that directly, kind of where there's a, the revolutionary schizo desire and the paranoiac... Ah, uh, fuck. <laughs> Was that in the quote? No, I found it here. Uh, the paranoiac despotic sign and the sign... Well, no, I was wrong. This isn't it. <laughs> While he's looking for the quote, um, so, since we're looking for an example, I, I think just to go for a very easy example, right, in terms of just the capitalist machine, we talked about quanta, right? So, like... This is a very basic point about going to work, right? You, Your time is represented in wage per hours, right? You're represented as potential labor power, expended labor power. You know, this is their point about like quantification. It, it doesn't dehumanize you or alienate you per se in a traditional Marxist sense. But that to me is the deterritorialization where, where those numbers, that's where the intensities and effects are in relation to the socius, yeah. So like even with like something like the green movement, um, right, like there's still this level of like capital where like even trees, right? How many trees have you saved? You know, where, how much money did you spend to save them? Um, what do we spend on spokespeople, right? Like that's, to me, those are all symptoms of uh, deterritorialization. All right, I think that helps. It's um, I'm trying to find modern versions of this, I think, is becoming more and more difficult. And it feels as though 
it's also the kind of thing that uh, sort of by nature we can't do in a modern setting that it's the kind of thing you can only realize has happened after it's already happened uh, as uh, Hegel I think uh, was the guy who once said uh, a change has only happened when you've realized it's happened uh, that you can't actually experience it as it as it goes through. It feels like you can't necessarily go, oh, this is being ter- deterritorialized. Not a thing you can do. I'm just trying to figure out uh, better examples than the ones they use as I try to break some of this down. That's fine. Um, All right, uh, let's let's try uh, Musky uh, since you're here. Oh uh, boy, you you asked. Uh, I think a really good one is uh, squaring uh, 3.9 and 3.10. The idea of uh, if there's two kinds of money, wages and balances, like in 3.9, then how can there be really one class in 3.10? It seems only a certain type of person has access to money in its liquid form. Cough, cough, bourgeoisie, cough. Uh, this is a great question, actually. Yeah, that's quite a good point, because uh, one of the things that I wanted to bring up was the fact that, you know, in the primitive um, regime and the, you know, in the despotic regime, you know, they go out of their way to say in each case there's two bases of everything. And uh, and so it is quite interesting that that you know in the capitalist system it's the uh the the money of finance and the commodity values that are the two but you would expect that there would be two classes just like there were two moieties in the kinship system you'd expect that there'd be two uh classes but but that doesn't that that's not what they're saying it's actually a really good question. I don't necessarily have an answer for, uh, and I've been thinking about it since you posted it. So hate to break that to you. I'm apologizing. <laughs> well, I think so. Like, let me tell the story of like the reason why it came up. It was because we were talking about. I was with my family, and we were talking about Trump, and we were looking at this guy who's like really emblematic of a certain class. Let's say like a certain class of people who doesn't actually have any money at all and just moves around this debt and like liquid assets and that's why he pays nothing in taxes is because he doesn't have wages like the rest of us have wages and it seems like that that makes a class structure that seems to like be a sort of concrete thing that marks him as like fundamentally different works in a different world than the people like us who you know do stuff for wages mostly um and, and it makes me wonder how how we use Deleuze and Guattari's definition of class that they put up as because if the bourgeoisie is the decoding and deterritorializing class, that makes sense why they would move around these blocks of debt and liquid assets and not really work with the sort of wages that they give to everyone else's like pittance, I guess. Um, but what how do we like square that that seems like a contradiction at the same time they, they even acknowledge that as much where they go on in like one of the next paragraphs after they say well the bourgeoisie is the only class then they go it'll nonetheless be said that there is a class that is you know taken advantage of and a class that does the taking advantage <laughs> I, I i'm starting to think that maybe like what they're saying is that kind of no matter what work you're doing like even if you're just a farmer uh you know you're still at some 
to some extent participating in capitalism and so they're framing that as like decoding these you know territorial flows of like crops and turning that into money and capital uh, that yeah. makes a lot of sense i think that's where i'm like i would go for it too but it's it seems like a contradiction that they're even like evidently aware of with that other paragraph let me see if i can find the exact quote and I will say, I know later on they have the the line. Um, it, it's in the next uh, second, an entire next chapter four, uh, where they talk about how the bourgeoisie literally fucks the proletariat, and it's obviously they don't think the proletariat doesn't exist. They they say that multiple times, and I know Deleuze has said that in talks. So it's a how do you square these things? I don't know if they're necessarily so. I don't know if they're necessarily saying that there's only one person. I think they're trying to, and a lot of this gets lost, it feels like they're trying to make the ultimate point that effectively the proletariat has no uh, subjectivity, has no ability to impact society, that they are, uh, how to put it, um, and again, I'm not saying I necessarily believe any of this. It just feels like what they're saying is that the bourgeoisie is the only one with revolutionary capacity because as they're the only people experiencing the flows, they're also the only people who necessarily sort of come out of it with uh, celibate machines. And if they don't, if that's the case, that's subjectivity right there. Uh, proletariat doesn't get it. That makes sense because they... Okay, so I found a couple of the quotes... Um, that we might want to jump off of from in the text. Um, the first one is on 254. That was the one I was talking about where they write, it will be said that there is nonetheless a class that rules and a class that is ruled, both defined by surplus value, the distinction between the flow of financing and the flow of income and wages. But this is only partially true since capitalism is born of the conjunction of the two in the differential relations and integrates them both in the continually expanded reproduction of its limits so that the bourgeois is justified in saying not in terms of ideology, but in the very organization of the axiomatic, there is only one machine, that of the great mutant decoded flow cut off from goods and one class of servants, the decoding bourgeoisie, the class that decodes the castes and the statuses, and that draws from the draws from the machine an undivided flow of income convertible into consumer and production goods, a flow on which profits and wages are based. And the other quote is sort of in reference to what book Brooks was talking about. And it's at the bottom, it's at the next paragraph on 255. Uh, it says, that is why the problem of a proletarian class belongs, first of all, to praxis. The task of the revolutionary socialist movement was to organize the bipolarity of the social field, a bipolarity of the classes. But it sounds like it's not from the point of view of ideology, which is what they say. Uh, rather, you know, the task of socialism is to produce an ideology that makes classes bipolar like that. Instead, maybe what they're saying is that this machine, the capitalist machine, only cares about the bourgeoisie because the bourgeoisie is the class that brings you together these decoded flows. Maybe we can flesh that out in a way that's more clear. Uh, I just wanted to can mention give, something. Can you I just the, want to mention sorry. something? Can you give the page number real quick before Kent goes into his point? It's two fifty four and two fifty five. Thank you. Go ahead, Kent. I just wanted to mention something I mentioned before is Albert Mimi, the colonizer and the colonized. And the basic story there is that the colonized just want to be the colonizer. That everything they do is to be like the colonizer. 
And so it seems like these classes, which are kind of like this abstract structure that's uh, projected on uh, society, is uh, rather than being organic to it, um, you know, I mean, the, protele- pro- the proletariat just wants to be the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie just want to be the, um, you know, the 1%, the, the, the financial class that own everything. And so, you know, it seems like that's that's the kind of situation, you know, that that's that prevents the proletariat from um, supporting their own uh, interests. Like, uh, what's the matter with Kansas? Well, and I would ask. So, a lot of what they're writing here, if we go back to, um sort of what was the original conception of the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie is property-owning class, and the proletariat is uh, the no-property-owning working uh, working poor. That's to go sort of far back in line. A lot of what they talk about, though, is that during the switch we've had, and they, they, they outline very specifically that in the 1900s, for the early 1900s, like 1900s, uh, versus the 1950s, which they reference uh, pretty specifically, there's changes in how the economy functions, that it's moved from that industrial to what we would now call um, uh, customer service-based, service-based economy. And so what is a proletariat or bourgeoisie inside of this new sort of paradigm of how these things function? And I think that's a really fair, to me, that's a fair critique and a good question of where these these classes exist now. And I think a lot of what they're talking about here is that in this modern society where money is producing money, the bourgeoisie class is a wider conception than what we used to have. Like, is anyone here actually proletariat? I don't Damn, think so. calling people well, out like that. Well, that's the point. No one wants to admit to being proletariat. That's the problem. And even if we could, like, let's say I admitted to it, like, by definition, I can't really be at least, you know, that that classic conception of the industrial working class isn't a thing. Like, as far as I know, it's not a thing almost anywhere inside of developed countries. We've now offshored those or reshored them overseas. So the work that industrial working class is now something we've placed elsewhere at the extremes of our sort of realm of influence. And they talk about that as well. So I, I wonder if a lot of that is sort of filtering into this idea that, look, it's the, we had this idea. It's not so much the case anymore. Uh, uh, to quote, uh, but not only are these determinations too narrow and too wide, but the objective being they define as class interests remains purely virtual so long it is not embodied in a consciousness that, to be sure, does not create it, but actualizes it in an organized party suited to the task of conquering the state apparatus. Uh, Sort of mocking the idea, actually. But I think also, maybe to point, this is kind of I, I think what they're getting at, like in your example, is, this is kind of like the classic challenge of these modern gig economies and like organizing in that sense. And and people have made some breakthroughs, but, um, you know, part of what they're talking about of this, like cleaving the social field and forcing, it's almost like they're saying the revolutionary socialist movements forced the proletarians into existence, not because people weren't in those conditions beforehand, but because there's a sentence there somewhere, I don't know which paragraph where they say like, just working in similar conditions 
in and of itself doesn't constitute you as a class you know it, it it's because there's you know that's sort of an accidental uh, mode that people find themselves in there has to be some other movement some other process that actually turns you into that with the bourgeoisie it, it makes a bit of sense because they in a subservient role but they, they have a very a, a very active role in shaping events and seem to consider themselves you know part of the same class but with the so like the, these movements in marxism helped create the concept and the exist the actual existence of the classes so that people could recognize themselves in it and i guess the challenge with those kinds of things is for young people you know and older people you know people with precarious jobs like you know there was a while in the early 2000s i remember the precariat became a thing i don't think it i don't think it took hold but that there's a challenge of sort of like reforging how do you how do you get people to understand themselves as part of something like that like it kind of has to be created i like that musky did that answer anything or did musky leave Mus musky left that's a shame i think we generally answer the question though uh kent yes uh you had a uh sort of longer piece that you recorded and i'm probably going to insert it uh let's insert it here and with editing magic uh everyone who at home got to listen to uh this thing i'm linking to you right now which is your uh longer reading and i'll i'll read it now and the impression I have gotten of this section 10 is that it is really based on difference and repetition, and more precisely, the implicit use of Cassirer philosophy of symbolic forms, volume three, to define the capitalism phase. Would you like to go into this, or should I just have that sort of posted and copied? Uh, does that work for you? Well, it, it's just kind of a hypothesis of mine that I kind of uh, realized as we were going through this last chapter that. Uh, when he talks about axiomatic, um, you know, if you take that to be the kind, the kind of axiomatics of set theory as the example, then it seems to me that um, you know you could you could <clears throat> see what's interesting is that in difference and repetition. Deleuze uses Casera's philosophy in Volume Three of philosophy of symbolic forms without mentioning his name. And in fact, he even changes the mathematical um, example that he uses so that, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell that that uh, it's Kassira that he's talking about. But I just happened to have read Kassira before I read Difference and Repetition last time and noticed this. And uh, so what does Kassira do? Kassira, um, well, uh, first thing, uh, one of the things that I realized is that, you know, we have Lacan's imaginary, symbolic, and real. Well, Kassira's written three volumes basically about that in his uh, symbolic forms uh, with the, um, you know, the first volume is on language, so that's the symbolic. Second volume's on mythology, so that's like the imaginary. And the third volume is on science, which is more like the real. And so, but the, the interesting part is volume three, where, where basically Kassira says that the Kantian a priori and the categories change over time. So what Kassira does as a, as a neo-Kantian is that he um, kind of uh, unifies Kant's 
philosophy based on the schematism. And then basically he says that that it, that in time uh, the uh, the 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 a priori's can change, and and he specifically um, uh, talks about this change being to do with the introduction of set theory by Dedekin, and basically the change is that um, prior to that. Uh, if you had a representation, you had to identify every element in the representation. But with set theory, you can use the sets as filters, and therefore you get you can describe infinite sets, and you don't have to represent every element of the uh, in the representation. And so he says that that's a change of the Kantian a priori's. And there's a book called The Dynamics of Reason by Friedman. That talks about this this uh, this idea that Casera has of of the change of a priori's, uh, you know, which I think is a new idea because everyone thought that a priori's were fixed prior to this idea. But but anyway, if you if you think of that idea in relationship to this axiomatics, and you think of the axiomatics as operating as filters that allow infinite representations then I think that gives you a kind of different view of what he's saying in, in, in this uh, third stage that he's talking about here in, um, you know, the, the capitalist stage. That, so, that, basically, ba- that basically what's happening is that, the, that by adding assumptions to the axiomatics, the, the, the system adapts. But what, it, what, is the, what is the system actually doing is that there's these these um, these flows that are being compared to each other, like in derivatives, and so those those flows in relationships to flows are that's what's being defined by the axiomatics. So I I liked this, and it in specifically where I like this, and it helps me think about this is when we're talking again about uh, the way the way that. Uh, at, how did you say his name? I've never said it aloud. Kassira. Well, I, I pronounce it Kassira. It's probably wrong, but I. Um, the his concept around sort of the the third symbolic form is is very much in line with, in my mind, uh, Deleuze's logic of sense, where he talks about like what I just talked about with Masumi, uh, this sort of thing that it exists because we're playing talking about things that are in potentials, and because things are in potentials, we can talk about effectively infinite sets. We're not describing them in perfect mathematical ideal detail because that's not really where. Uh, these ideas exist. They play inside of the virtual. Is that close? To, am I am I close to what you're talking about there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, just to revisit the 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 Bergsonism, you know the um, uh, you know the re so so there are mathematical ideas associated with each one of these states um, uh, in Bergsonism. So, like the real is associated with calculus and is determinate. And then you have the um, the actual is probabilities, right? And the and and the possibilities they can be uh, represented with fuzzy sets and logic, and then and then the virtual is the propensities and tendencies and dispositions. And so and so the the whole the whole key here is that 
if you have possibilities, it's hard to explain how actualities occur. So if you posit that there are propensities then uh, and the virtual, then you can say, well, the individuation occurs from by the by the the propensities being um, or the tendencies or the dispositions being filled out until you have individuals that are actual. And then the kind of interesting thing about that is that the the you know what's 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 across from that is the real. And so basically, the, he's saying that those propensities are real. It, 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 the, there's like a cycle between these states where you start off with the virtual, and then you go the actual, and then the real, and then the possible, and then the back, and then back to the propensities. Any thoughts on all of this? Because it's a lot at once. I know. <laughs> I think I think that the the point the, that that I was trying to make is that. Um, and it, it kind of makes sense that they're using difference and repetition as their basis for describing the capitalist uh, regime, and then and then they're going back in time and positing the despotic and the and the primitive as a way of of getting there. I think the only thing I could contribute is what I was saying in the chat about qualitative versus quantitative multiplicities, and that when you were saying about you know, the advantage of this way of talking about things with the virtual is that you can kind of talk about individuation and how individual comes to be sort of over time and this kind of thing. I think just the other thing you see so much in Bergsonism is I feel one one way in which Deleuze gets a lot of his concepts around breaks and, you know, these idea of leaps and differences in kind. Because a lot of Bergson's preoccupation is with the idea of space and extensity uh, be, being something that uh, you know, it do, it doesn't it, it's not possible for it to have the same kind of I guess character as something like time that has uh, it, you know differences. It's its nature is to have differences in kind, and with something like differences in degree, he he always takes issue with ways of talking about subjectivity or recollection or experience or any of those things that that put it on sort of like a scale of being with the more and the less. And, you know, he has this whole critique I put in chat earlier of the idea of the more and the less. So there's something about the experience of becoming that it's not a gradual thing. You know, it's a kind of break and it always has to be. I think that what Bergson is trying to do there uh, in matter and memory is, uh, is to say that, um, you know the 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 past has a wholeness to it so every every moment in time has its own past this is a you know husserl has this idea that that you know the past is indexed to its time so so the past is constantly changing as time changes because certain things actually happen and and some of those some of those things in the past get reinterpreted and so bergson wants to understand that possibility of emergence but the way that he does it is by going back and reinterpreting the past as virtual and saying that the past is like a cone where you have greater and greater scope over each moment in time of these pasts that uh, may kind of have wholeness to them at the different scopes that you think of the past, you know, more and more global time. 
So I think I think that's a way of understanding that there's some kind of wholeness to the past that is constantly invoked. And and I think this goes back to what you were saying, someone was saying about the Erstat, that that the Erstat is treated like a uh, archetype. And that archetype is a kind of whole way of organizing things that just constantly there and putting some kind of pressure on the present because because from its first establishment it 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 just keeps getting reactualized over time over and over and over again you know the fact that the fact that human beings could organize in cities is kind of like an emergent event that revealed something about human beings that you know wasn't obvious from our hunter gatherer past and even our early agricultural period where we were organized in groups of like 120 or so the fact that we could produce larger social configurations like the 40,000 people that were in the early cities uh was a part of our nature that hadn't manifested before So that that was a propensity that was there in human beings, but we never got to the point of of actually manifesting it. But when the first cities appeared, then that became an actuality. And so basically what they're saying is that propensity is always there as a possibility for organizing. So anyway, Brooks had to leave, I guess. So um, uh, anyone have any other comments on this or shall we go on to the next topic? Uh, is this the one you're talking about? So what I meant was the point where Deleuze relates Bergson's multiplicity to Reinemann's interpretation of multiplicities. I was wondering whether Kent Palmer could talk about that and how it relates to his comment on set theory. Yes. Um, it's on page 39 of this book. Okay. Of uh, Bergsonism. Oh, of Bergsonism. I don't have that to hand. Do you know the, uh, d- does anyone have that to hand? Yeah, I'm, I'm finding the quote now. Yeah, ready to hand, exactly. Um, I, I'd say I'm not in a position to be able to comment on Reinemann's geometry very much. I'll just read this out loud since we're waiting anyway. Yeah. The word multiplicity is not there as a vague noun corresponding to the well-known philosophical notion of the multiple in general. In fact, for Bergson, it is not a question of opposing the multiple to the one, on the contrary, of distinguishing two types of multiplicity. Now, this problem goes back to a scholar of genius, G.B.R. Ryman, a physicist and mathematician. Ryman defined as multiplicities those things that could be determined in terms of their dimensions or their independent variables. He distinguished discrete multiplicities and continuous multiplicities. The former contain the principle of their own metrics, the measure of one of their parts being given by the number of elements they contain, and the latter found a metrical principle in something else, even if only in phenomena unfolding in them or in the forces acting in them. It is clear that Bergson as a philosopher was well aware of Raymond's general problems. Not only his interest in mathematics points towards this, but more specifically, Duration and Simultaneity is a book in which Bergson opposes his own doctrine to the theory of relativity, which is directly dependent on Raymond. If our hypothesis is correct, this book loses its doubly strange character. In the first place, it does not appear abruptly and without explanation. 
Rather, it brings into the open a confrontation that until then had been implicit between Riemannian and Bergsonian interpretations of continuous multiplicities. Second, Bergson's renunciation and condemnation of this book is perhaps due to the fact that he did not feel able to pursue the mathematical implications of the theory of multiplicities. He had, in fact, profoundly changed the direction of the Riemannian distinction. Continuous multiplicities seemed to him to belong essentially to the sphere of duration. Uh, in this way, for Bergson, duration was not simply the indivisible, nor was it the non-measurable. Rather, it was that which divided only by changing in kind, that which was susceptible to measurement only by varying its metrical principle at each stage of the division. Bergson did not confine himself to opposing a philosophical vision of duration to a scientific conception of space, but took the problem into the sphere of the two kinds of multiplicity. He thought that the multiplicity proper to duration had for its part a precision as great as that of science. Moreover, that it should react upon science and open up a path for it that was not necessarily the same as that of Riemann and Einstein. This is what we must attach so much importance to the way in which Bergson, borrowing the notion of multiplicity, gives it uh, renewed range and distribution. I'm reading here continuous as synonymous with qualitative, because I think that's what Bergson usually, when he, when he talks about multiplicities, with especially with the duration. Um, and the precision part, there's, there's a whole bit at the beginning of Bergsonism where he talks about Bergson's attempt to to ground intuition as a philosophical method, and yeah, a lot of this stuff, I, you know, it, it's to me, it's sort of like ground before reading Deleuze. I wish I'd read this stuff before because it, it helps me understand so much more about what he's trying to do. Oh, definitely. Uh, versus directly related to these specific points that we're, we're talking about in Antiedipus, but you know, even the idea of intuition as a method becoming multiplicities like all of this stuff even when he expands beyond uh Bergson it's clear kind of where where a lot of it is coming from so so the my question is is the Rhinebun the continuous one or the discrete one it's it sounds like it's the discrete one well he says that Ryman distinguishes both discrete and continuous multiplicities but that he's saying Bergson is saying continuous multiplicities seem to belong to the sphere of duration and that that okay. seems to make sense to me because he he talks about quantitative multiplicities being proper to space and extensity and qualitative multiplicity being proper to duration and becoming, I guess you would call it. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And another person who um, has this idea of uh, kind of ultimate continuity is Peirce. And that's that's one of the presumptions of Deleuze and Guattari and anti-Oedipus is that there is a kind of perfect continuity at the uh, at the bottom of all of the desiring machines, the hierarchy of desiring machines. Yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, um, yeah, this is very interesting. <laughs> it's something for further exploration and research, but, you know, I don't have any kind of uh, uh, insight into the difference between these two. It, it, it just, just uh, but to bring it back to Peirce and uh, Cantor, um, you know, the Persian idea is that there's continuity, which is like perfect continuity, which, you know, the Cantorian paradise with all the infinity hierarchy of infinities um, is still discrete as far as Peirce would be concerned. And so that maybe that's the difference between these two is that the that you know it's like the difference between uh, Cantor's idea because because usually infinity is the definition of continuity but 
if you say I've got a continuity that's like perfect continuity that's beyond the infinities, then that's that's kind of what purses say. So a quick point about uh, the um, uh, the qualitative versus quantitative. Uh, so this is this is really interesting, and um, I don't know much about Raymond Raymond and. Uh, the mathematical side, but um, in difference and repetition, Deleuze goes on to say that uh, he actually gives a critique of Bergson there. And I think he is critical of this identification of the virtual multiplicity with the qualitative. So he will actually distinguish a third dimension. Um, so he says there is this uh, intensity the field of intensity, he calls it a spatium, uh, which I guess is a Latin, uh, Latin word. And he says, um, you know, the spatium has the, uh, undergoes a certain or kind of differentiates itself um, into, first of all, qualities and then quantities qualities and extension but the the virtual as this kind of primary you know root sort of uh, source or field is prior to both quality and quantity and i think at that point he wants to basically distinguish himself from berkson i think he sees berkson as being maybe too psychologistic uh right yeah so just as lewis saying uh so so the field of intensity is actually prior to actuality it's pure virtuality and um my reading also is that so this is a kind of spatial synthesis and prior to this he discusses a temporal synthesis um you know which is a whole different uh, so it's a very complicated kind of a um story of basically actualization how do you get from the pure virtual idea which is a kind of pure multiplicity uh that's even pre-individual how do you get from that to um an individualized uh kind of um field and then from that to actual empirical experience of qualities and quantities and i mean so much of like mo a, a big chunk of difference in repetition is basically about that and um so my takeaway was that there is this like third uh, sort of ground level that he wants to distinguish. Um, even from even Bergson, in a sense, didn't go far enough, I think, for Deleuze. I think you're right about that. From everything I've read in terms of commentaries, there's these sort of phases in Deleuze's thought in that respect. And that's really, really interesting. I would love to read more about that, maybe if I get to difference in repetition at some point. But just to ask, so you're saying so the, he says qualitative quantitative and then what what's the term he associates with the virtual so so that changes depending on where you are in the in this stream of differentiation and actualization but uh prior to the uh uh the the quantities and qualities uh he talks about this pure spatiality or a spatium and he calls it the field of intensity i think so it's a kind of depth. Uh, he also calls it the depth, and it's and it's ex exactly it's not actual, but it sort of it actualizes itself. And then there is this strange um, distinction between differentiation with a T and differentiation with a C. Uh, 
and those are uh, those are basically the names of this process. I think ultimately what he's getting at is the platonic problem of uh, the relationship between the idea and the visible thing, right? And he's really breaking that down into a number of stages. So, but anyway, that's just my reading of that. I'm going to paste as well. You know, it's interesting because in this, in Bergsonism, Deleuze is so protective of Bergson. And he actually specifically talks about the psychological thing. And he's repeatedly saying, no, we shouldn't look at this as too psychological. It's, it's non-psychological. Recollection isn't about a subject remembering things. So it's interesting sort of seeing that later critique. So, Lou, I hope you're happy. I think I've done... Uh, well, I've done my best to try and completely divert this discussion into Bergson. <laughs> just kidding. Could I, could I just mention some someone who who talks about this is Stuart Kaufman. He's got these two books, At Home in the Universe and Investigations. And he, he you know, he's someone who takes seriously this question of how do you get things manifesting out of nothing? And uh, so he's someone else that's worth looking at it with respect to this problem. It's an open problem. So I was curious too, Doug, you mentioned in the chat, um, and this kind of relates to the, the subject of like the virtuality and the actuality, but um, you were interested in universal history. Um, yeah. Tell us more. <laughs> sure. I mean, so like the notion of a universal history kind of goes way back to, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks and having uh, these different ages of, uh, um, you start with like the golden age and the silver age and the bronze and the iron age. And um, yeah, similar to like the way we were discussing uh, they're kind that Dillis and Guitar are kind of starting with, all right, we've got capitalism now. What were the stages that could have led to this? They were doing this, but with myth. Um, and so, you know, they were in sort of the Iron Age and had maybe a little notion of the Bronze Age and, you know, delved into myth to talk about the gods of the Golden Age and the heroes of the uh, Silver Age. <clears throat> and, um, So essentially that sort of thought, uh, you know, has, has crept up again uh, now and then, uh, you know, over the last 2000 or so years, but it's relatively discredited as a form of uh, inquiry uh, nowadays. So it was a uh, pretty um, notable, I think that Deleuze and Guattari uh, engaged in it. Um, and there's a lot that I still want to go into specifically, uh, you know, kind of recharting what they did in chapter three and how that lines up with uh, Marx's methodology um, and what he said. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the general outline of what I've learned about universal history so far. By universal history, you mean like historicism, the fact that they come up with these uh, phases that seem to be determined? Yeah. yeah, it's like the idea that there's the same movements and stages of history 
uh, in different societies all over the globe. Yeah, the, the, one of the books that I read early on about this was Popper's Poverty of Historicism, which is basically saying that when you project um, these phases on social development, you, you basically miss a lot of details because you have to ignore a lot of things to project them. Like, for instance, you know, one of the classic examples is uh, feudalism. You know, the only other place where they really had feudalism was Japan. And so people come up with models of feudalism in Japan and Europe. But there were a lot of differences between those two societies and their historic situation and their cultural situation and everything else. And so to pick out feudalism and say, well, Japan is like Europe, then, yeah, there's some things in common, but there's almost everything else is different. Right. So that's why it's notable that Tools and Guitari aren't talking about feudalism. They're talking about the barbarian despotic machine, which is supposed to be slightly more abstract and, and could cover more uh, territory, so to speak. Well, like in, in, uh, in the little, uh, you know, I did a little podcast about this, uh, and I mentioned the fact that you know, if you look into Sumerian history uh, and and this emergent event where these cities kind of appeared overnight, um, what you see in the in the you know what the archaeology has found is that um, you know there is no palace in those cities, and there were no city walls, and so. Um, basically there was a temple to the God and that was it. So, you know, the despotic machine didn't exist at first. At first the city was actually ruled by the priests of the God and the gods were like dolls that they took care of and fed and clothed and did all these ceremonies with. But through that, they organized all the agriculture on a large scale and then later, it's the despot that comes in as the savior of the god because the cities started attacking each other and they needed to raise armies to protect, each, protect them. So, so there's a little glitch, as far as I see, between the, what the archaeology has found out and what, what Deleuze and Guattari is saying. But what's amazing about that glitch is that uh, the, 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 these gods that the that were basically like mannequins that uh, that they were uh, that the priests were taking care of. Um, it, it it seems like that's like a perfect model of the body without organs. Can you expand so, on that? Well, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's kind of like a zero of the body. These dolls that they they considered gods, mm. and. Um, and everything was organized around them, you know, like the center of the city were these, the dolls that were like the gods that they were taking care of. But the priests were actually doing all the organization for the gods. So they, they weren't saying, follow me, but do what the god said. And then they were telling everyone what to do. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um... So, so see that's that's the point. That's a the, that's a detail that Deleuze and Guattari either weren't aware of or left out. I don't know when that was known, but but you see the the thing is the pure historicism doesn't quite cover that 
uh, detail. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, and then the, the thing I like about the Ur Stat is that Ur was the first city state. So Ur means primordial, and it also means the actual first city, because <clears throat> there was Ur and Uruk were the main, the the first two cities. I think Alyosha was just trying to ask why uh, that doesn't fit in with historicism. Well, I was what I was just going to say is it's funny because I, I was advocating this earlier, but <laughs> in general, you know, I. I reading about the ver- the reason we got on Bergson and all the rest of it was because we were talking about the virtual and how many of their concepts like the Urstadt, like even aspects of the BWO, so many things come from this reading of the virtual. Having said that, I think it is interesting, like coming from post-colonial studies as I am, like died in the wool there. It, it's it's kind of a funny get out of jail free card that we, you know, anytime there's something sort of off about something they're saying, you can be like, well, no, it's really... They mean in the savage, you know, the despotic machine in the virtual sense. I, I suspect that there's actually quite a lot that we could delve into maybe in another session about, you know, at, at what point does this, is it coherent with itself? Because I, you know, it's interesting and I find it useful in certain ways, but it's not only, yeah. like, it, there's still, I, I don't know if I'm knowledgeable enough to say how, it, how we would critique it, but like, there's even if it's not, even if this universal history is different from historicism, there's still certain ways it inter- interacts and intersects with history. So I'd be interested mm-hmm. to read like Spivak's famous essay, you know, on the subaltern, like she spends half of it ripping, if I remember correctly, ripping into Foucault and Deleuze specifically. Mm-hmm. So I would love to think about, you know, rereadings in that sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'd absolutely like to, sorry, Kent, did you want to say something? Well, I, I guess it, it, my point was that whenever you create an abstraction and you project it back on history, which is Deleuze and Guattari are definitely doing, there's certain things that, you know, history has a lot of variety in it that, you know, is counter to these, uh, these overarching structures. And I think, I think Deleuze and Guattari are, are well aware of that and are tr- trying their best to create structures which are, which are amenable to actually applying to history but still there are these details that that don't fit into their system yeah i mean um i think that uh you know there's a lot that we could look at in the particularities of their universal history um which would be well worth doing um what i wanted to add though is that uh from what I've been reading there is like a reason that they did this which is that they're trying to sort of escape from that trap of uh, how do you critique a history from within it? Um, and so they're sort of using this device of a universal history to try to do that. I think that the interesting thing about the Erstadt is that they say that it's like a, um, it's kind of like an archetype. It's It's got this kind of virtual life that keeps impinging on history. And I think they're right about that because, you know, um, uh, so, so, you know, if you go back to Sumer, you know, first it was the priesthood that took over and organized things. And then the, the, uh, the strong men came in to protect the gods and, and basically took over from them. And then eventually the, uh, you know, the, the, the Kings tried to say, well, I am the God. So, um, so if you fast forward to the French revolution, you know, there were three estates you know, the first was the royalty, the second was the church, and the third was everyone else. And I think the 
I think it was like one or two percent in the royalty and one or two percent in the clergy. But most of the clergy were royals. So uh, so that's like two percent of society is controlling everything. So I think they're right about the Erstat as being an archetype because throughout history, sovereignty and religion were the basic principles around every which everything was um, was uh, organized. And then and then the only breaks with that were the the five democracies, kind of five original democracies that occurred, that kind of broke the the this this regime of sovereignty. Like, for instance, the Athenian and the Roman democracies. And then what's interesting about the Athenian case is that they they, they wanted to have a, a monarch, but just couldn't manage it. So then they eventually decided to organize themselves. Doug just posted something about Judith Butler. We You know, we have a Judith Butler reading group over the Continental Philosophy Server. So any other any other questions? Um, Brooks has left us again. So any other questions you'd like to go into? I think we want to be careful here, though, because like they're not doing universal history in the sense that they're trying to write an explanation of how everything happened up to this point. Nor are they trying to do that in some sort of fragmentary, frayed nature. Right? They make it very clear that what they're doing is. Uh, is critical, ironic, and retrospective. But in that point, too, like a lot of what they're doing in these sections is dealing with things like where it looks like um, Tate's uncertain societies or more, more um, pointedly certain conceptualities, certain understandings, certain Tate's on things, how we're understanding what's, what's happening. Uh, in the same way how things are kind of like in their repeatability in that way too, even with the difference, like how those things can be, are at risk of having been edipalized and that, right? How there's a certain interpretive lens that kind of uh, sits above how we might be looking at these things. Like for instance, when they're, when they're dealing with Levi-Strauss and filiation, um, as like the primary thing that alliance is based off of, right? Like they're very critical of that notion. And that's, I don't think that that's them trying to say, well, you just don't understand how history works, right? Or like you made it a grievous error. Like in terms of like what this is doing and in terms of like the genealogical aspect, I don't think they've identified three stages through which all history is um, passed through. I think what they're trying to do is show us in a lot of ways um, how to fire, how to follow, how to fire, how to follow things like desiring production as we interact with one another and in the way that certain social groups, social formations, when we come together, and I often use the server as an example of this, how there are these elements of things like the, uh, the primitive, the, the despotic and the capitalist. And in that way, like, you, hopefully you see what I'm getting at is it's not really a point about like whether or not um, the whether or not uh, history pre-Grecian flows into this the the despotic right like they're very clear that the despotic can be democratic it, the the points of these conceptualities and and these these genealogical points. And it's almost tempting to compare them with stages. 
um, it seems to me not so much to be like a point of like absolute historicism, but more so like in many ways consideration of um, I want to be Foucaultian about it of ethicality, particularly in group dynamics and how desiring production is happening and um, is affected within these these groups. Well, I think one thing that that's worth um, thinking about is that uh, there was a certain p- place where they, um, you know, these stages, they identified them with the three syntheses. And I, th- I think that the, the key point here in all this is that, um, you know, the fact that they're projecting these three syntheses as kind of the organizing principle for everything, um, it, it was quite a, kind of a very bold move on their part. And, and I'm not sure where they got these three syntheses from, but they seem to be very effective in being able to understand things uh, and the way things work as syntheses of the unconscious. And so I, I, I think that basically what they're doing is they're, they're starting with difference and repetition and saying that's our analysis of capital. And then, and then, they, then, then they're going back into time and kind of positing these uh, stages that would allow them to get there as a tentative hypothesis. And I think we should treat them as a tentative hypothesis and not as like an absolute historicism, like for instance, dialectical materialism turned into. No, I think they're they're going after more something, right? Like an analysis that can be used in in situ. And possibly- and the interesting thing is that is uh, I'm finding it, you know, as I keep writing these uh, tutorial working papers, I find that it's it's pretty effective. And so, right. you know, it, it'd be interesting to know how they came up with that. I do think there is a bit of a mapping between the three syntheses of uh, anti-Oedipus and the um, three syntheses of time in difference and repetition. Um, you know, going backwards, there's, to me, a, a link between consummation and the future and disjunction and and marking the present i'm not sure so much about connection in the past though well that's interesting because i came up to the opposite conclusion i i I, my the conclusion i came up with was that the the so the three books the difference in repetitions dealing with the um with the passage syntheses that heidegger finds in kant with respect to the faculties and doing an internal critique of each of Kant's faculties. And so those are, those, those are things that we're conscious of. And then, and then it seems like logic of sense is all about the surface of the unconscious and where the meaning comes from out of, out of the interaction of sense and nonsense. And then it seems like they're projecting into the unconscious, these three syntheses, and if they are parallel to the uh, to the the passive syntheses, you know, I couldn't quite work out what what that parallel is. And, and in fact, they they've they actually kind of intimate that there's four syntheses because there's a a prior synthesis of sense uh, that they, that they're kind of positing as well. So, 
So, I mean, if you could, if you could figure that out, I, I mean, I'd really like to see that, um, that analogy between the three syntheses in uh, difference in repetition and these three syntheses in anti-Oedipus. Yeah, I'm not sure how well it works, but in difference in repetition, they do mention uh, John Batista Vico, who did like a universal history with three ages uh, in the same context of as the three syntheses of time there. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. I guess the, the, the overall point is that, you know, in order to really understand what they're saying in anti-Oedipus, we really need to balance off against that, what they're saying in logic, what Deleuze is saying in logic of sense and difference and repetition, and try to understand the interrelations between them. But that's a very difficult task. Yeah, I'm hoping that after anti-Oedipus, we go on and do logic of sense or difference and repetition. So any anybody else have any questions they'd like to raise? But yeah, we just we just talked about universal history, Doug's Oh yes, Doug's okay. long, long one. Apologies for having to drop out work called. It's almost like you were deterritorialized, Brooks. <laughs> Something like that. Um cool. Well then uh I'm gonna go ahead and uh start closing this out. All right. Well, uh, so next week we will continue with uh, uh, 3.11 as we move back to Anti-Oedipus, uh, back to Oedip the Oedipal complex itself, and then uh, ultimately into Chapter 4 as we learn about the schizo. So uh, do join us next week. I think this 10 o'clock time seems to be working out for a lot of people. Is everyone doing okay with it so far? Or should we move back to noon? What do you think? I think it'll be good if I just remember the time next week, yeah. All right. Then uh, we will continue next week, and uh, thank all of you guys very much. Woohoo! Bye. That was not bad at all.